Hey, welcome to Blue Wire. After you finish listening to this awesome Blue Wire podcast, make sure you check out the other pods in our Blue Wire family. Okay, I know, you're probably wondering, how do I do that? Well, it's simple. Go to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and search Blue Wire. Ta-da! They will all be there, so have fun listening. Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast. Thank you for joining me again this week as we take you through the latest news, analysis and game action surrounding our Chicago Bulls. I've been on a bit of an extended break here for the last few weeks, but I'm back on deck now and I've got some news I want to share with everyone from the top here. As I bring this installment of the show to you guys, I couldn't be more proud to announce that from this moment forward... Bulls HQ will be joining the Blue Wire Podcasting Network. So if you haven't heard about the Blue Wire Podcasting Network before, a little bit of a 411. Essentially, it's a startup podcasting network that endeavors to give you guys a one-stop shop of all the team-based podcasts you could ever need. So if you love digesting podcasts and you're into your basketball and NFL, head over to bluewirepods.com to tune into a range of different shows If you like to follow what's happening with a range of different NBA teams, we have shows for the Warriors, the Cavs, the Pelicans, the Lakers, and so much more. And given the network is sort of new and is expanding, we're going to be adding much more shows to the list as we sort of move forward here on Blue Wire. And I couldn't be more proud to be a Bulls-based podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network, but I'm not alone in that fact either. So I'm sure if you're listening to me, You're already tuning into the Cash Considerations podcast, a Chicago Bulls podcast hosted by the legends Ricky O'Donnell and Jason Pat. So if you're a nerd like me, and if you're listening to this show, you probably have to be, then I'm sure you want to soak up as much Bulls content as possible. So head over to bluewirepods.com and download and subscribe to Cash Considerations, or you can do so in all your typical podcasting apps and feeds, which you're already download your shows from. So get into cash considerations if you're not already doing so. But look, let's be honest, you probably are. And then now, of course, you can also find Bulls HQ there too. I'm super excited about this, you guys. To be able to join up with a growing podcasting network and to be surrounded and supported by such an amazing cast of shows, it's something I've been chasing for a long time. So to Kevin and the team at Blue Wire, thank you for taking a chance on Bulls HQ. And if nothing else, I promise that I will at least be the second best Bulls team-based podcast on the network. All right, now that the uh, self-gratification is out of the way, let's get into the real stuff. I've been away for a few weeks here, and during that period, I'm sure you guys have been tuning into Cash Considerations to get your weekly feel of Bulls analysis. So with that in mind, it probably doesn't make a ton of sense to go back over the last few weeks. And let's be honest, do we really care that much about the deep diving into each game at this point that has sort of you know unfolded over the last two to three weeks? Probably not. And I say this as I'm literally watching Bulls Utah. I'm catching the second half right now. I figured it's probably a better use of my time to be podcasting at the same time that I watch this Bulls game because to be honest with you, I've got one eye on it and I could probably be doing two things at once and just making my day a little bit more productive. So I certainly don't blame you guys if you're not necessarily tuning in that hard into. So we don't need to go through the ins and outs of each game, but let's talk holistically. But given that I've been away, 
I thought it probably made a little bit more sense to do a mailbag type episode where I get the pulse of the van- of the fan base and see what you guys have on your mind. And at least based on my Twitter timeline, it seems like more Bulls fans are watching more Murray State games than actual Bulls more Bulls games. So I opened up the mailbag and I wouldn't be too, uh, too surprised here to see a few questions pertaining to the draft and free agency and all that sort of stuff. That's probably more relevant to Bulls fans than the actual games going on. So let's talk mailbag. Let's answer your questions that you've sent through here. And I appreciate you all doing that. I received quite a few questions. I'll try to get through them as quickly as I can because there are a few here. Um, if I don't get through to, through to them all, I do apologize in advance, but I do appreciate everyone sending them through. But like I said, given we're in the middle of March Madness, I'm expecting a few draft questions. So let's start with that off the top. Let's start with the draft-based questions. And this one comes in from Leo Aldridge. And he asks, outside of Zion, which prospect should be at the top of the Bulls draft board, assuming we land in the top three via the lottery? So I'm really glad someone asked this question because this is a question that I've sort of been arguing about, not arguing about, but debating about with myself in my own mind, but online too. And It's an interesting one because I don't know if there is necessarily a right answer. So the only thing I'm sure about in this draft coming up is that Zion Williamson is the clear-cut number one guy in this draft. We shouldn't overthink it. It's it's fate complete if you ask me. He is the best player in this draft. He's going number one. If the Bulls don't get the number one pick, pick, which they have an 86% chance that they won't, then um, Zion Williamson will not be a Chicago Bull. So it will come down to... Who is thereafter with Zion? And it's it's an interesting question. And I mentioned Murray State before. And look, unfortunately, they got eliminated, eliminated from the tourney a, a little bit earlier um, today, my time, which is unfortunate for basically for everyone, really, because it was really fun watching John Morant hit this sort of big time scale and, and see what he could do in the tournament against some better competition. And unfortunately, that Florida State team was just too big, too long and it was pretty much a Ja Morant just going up against guys that were long, that were tall. I don't, I, probably the average height was maybe 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, they all looked jacked as well. So it's kind of hard to be critical of Ja Morant in this Florida State game. But unfortunate for all of us that we don't get to see more of, of Ja Morant because that first game that he had in the tournament, he was pretty damn impressive with that triple-double. So I bring up Ja Morant because he's the most likely name to go at number two. It seems like after that first game in particular that... He really wowed a lot of people. Probably a lot of people haven't hadn't watched many Murray State games, and you know I don't necessarily blame them for that fact. But for a lot of people, they probably would have heard of Ja Morant. But if this was the first time they watched him, then uh, I think their evaluation of him or their perspective a perspective about Ja it pretty much rose pretty quickly. And I, I don't necessarily blame them for that. He's if, if you think he's the second best player in this draft, it's hard to argue against it necessarily. I don't know if I'm there just yet, but. If someone wants to mount that argument, it's hard to argue against, in my opinion, because beyond Zion, it's sort of a bit of a toss-up as to whether you like Ja Morant, whether you like Jared Culver, do you like RJ Barrett? Is there even someone else that you potentially want to throw in that mix? I don't know what the right answer for that is right now. We're probably going to learn a lot more as the tournament sort of kicks on, but as well as we know when the combine comes around, when these guys do individual workouts, we'll, we'll see how that sort of all plays out here over the coming months. So it's kind of hard to say who is the top prospect for the Bulls after Zion. But I see a lot of the fan base sort of penciling in Ja Morant at number two, assuming the Bulls obviously have number two pick. Now, it's probably more likely that they don't, but assuming the Bulls do have that number two pick, Zion is off the board. I could very much see Ja Morant being the pick, not only for the fan base, but for management too. We've got a gaping hole at point guard, it would seem. 
It doesn't look like Chris Dunn is probably going to be back, or if he is back, I don't think we're necessarily considering him the point guard of the future. So in that sense, it from a fit point of view, it, it kind of makes sense to put Ja Morant in there. But also, if you happen to believe he's the best player available at number two, then it makes sense there too. So I could see the case for Ja Morant, but I'm actually a big Jarrett Culver fan too. So I think you can mount an e- a pretty easy case for him being that selection at number two when maybe the fan base would be a little bit more in on Jarrett Culver or even even RJ Barrett too if we if we hadn't executed that trade for Otto Porto at the deadline. That small forward position sort of feels like it's been filled to some degree. So maybe those guys don't feel like the best fit. I don't necessarily agree with that. But uh, just getting a pulse of the fan base or me at least just reading into things, it's kind of, it's kind of shaping up like the majority of the fan base want Morant it would seem, and I'm just guessing here, that the that management and the team probably are, if we're thinking who they would have on their board, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Ja Morant is their second option behind Zion Williamson. So if we're thinking about the top prospects likely to go beyond Zion, I think it's those four guys. You could probably make a case for maybe one or two other guys, maybe Brandon Clark or Jackson Hayes or someone like that. But I think it's going to be those four in some sort of order. I don't know what the order will be. It'll probably be determined by which teams actually get picks two through to four. I mean, if the Phoenix Suns get picks two and the Bulls are at pick four, then there's no way the Bulls are probably going to land Jar Morant. And then that becomes an interesting conversation of what happens next. But yeah, I don't know. But I would say it's probably those four guys that are, or those three guys after Zion, I'll put it that way, but who the Bulls land. We'll find out on May 14 once that sort of lottery position is established and we'll have a better idea as to what pick they will have and what we can sort of set as realistic expectations. But nonetheless, they're probably my top four right now. But like I said, things can change over time. We've still got a few months here before the draft, so we'll see how it all shapes up. But the next question, let's move on to that one. This is also a draft-based question. This one comes in from Matt Gentile. He asks, who is better for the Bulls based on fit? Ja Morant or Zion Williamson? So this is an interesting question. And Matt sort of wanted to follow that up by sort of alluding to or, or suggesting that he's definitely not saying that that these two players are on an even, on an even playing field. He, he definitely believes and feels that Zion is the better player, but it's more a question around fit. And it's an interesting one because I think the default answer or the your gut instinct or your first instinct is to say Ja Morant, given that the Bulls don't really have that point guard of the future that we so... So frequently hear about, they've trialed a million point guards, it would seem, but they haven't necessarily found one that fits that profile. So on first instance, you want to say Ja Morant, given that he is likely going to be a top two pick and he is a point guard, which is, if you look at the roster, that's probably the the one position in the starting lineup that the Bulls come opening night next season probably don't have locked down. So Ja Morant would be the initial easy pick to make here, but I still have questions about Ja Morant's fit on the Chicago Bulls team. And, and I say that because the version of Ja Morant that we're seeing at Murray State at the moment, a guy that's got super high usage, is dominating everything on offense. He's scoring, he's passing, he's running everything. As I said, he had that triple-double in game one of the tournament. I don't think we're going to see that version of Ja Morant in Chicago just purely because of the personnel that the Bulls have. That This will be basically their third draft since rebuilding. They've already established that Zach Levine is their premier perimeter player. You got Lowry Markin in a power forward who, you know, hopefully will be the player that we all hope he can be. Wendell Carter Jr. will be back next season. He should get more uh, opportunity on offense and then we'll have a full season of Otto Porter too. So 
I don't think we're going to see Jar Morant necessarily taking, you know, 12, 15 shots and getting up to, you know, 16, 18, 20 points on quite consistently in his rookie year because I think, if anything, the skill that's going to sort of really show out for Jar on this team will be his playmaking ability and he'll probably be used more as a as a playmaker more so than a scorer. So if, if fans are expecting, you know, a 2010 type point guard that Jar can be, I don't know if you're necessarily going to get that in Chicago just based on the pieces around him. So if I think about, you know, a team that Jar Morant really fits on, I look at Memphis and I see a team that's moved on from Marcus Gasol, a team that should probably move on from Mike Conley shortly. And if you give the entire offense to Jar Morant in Memphis with Jaron Jackson Jr. alongside him, you could probably see more of this version of Jar that we're seeing at Murray State at Memphis. And I think you get closer to seeing that 20, 20 and 10 player, but I don't know if you necessarily see that in Chicago. So, it's, it's going to be an interesting question of fit because I also want to know what Jar does when he's off the ball because we haven't necessarily seen that in Murray State because, like I said, he's asked to do everything. He's on ball, whether it's for you know creating for others or scoring for him himself. He's, he's doing everything. The usage is super high. He's playmaking everything. So we haven't seen what he can do when he doesn't have the ball. What is he going to do when Zach Levine is creating or Larry Markinen is creating? These sorts of questions, they're of interest. So it, it just makes me pause a little bit about the fit with... Jar Moran, I don't think it's as big as a home run as some of the fan base is sort of making it out to be. That's not to say it won't work, but I don't think it's as seamless as some are making it out to be. But I, I, I still think you can make a pretty interesting case that Zion is the best fit, actually. So I know that maybe sounds contradicting given that he probably plays the same position as Larry Markin or even Wendell Carter Jr., but I think Zion is even... He might be a positionless player in the NBA, so... Maybe you can get away with it. It's, it's it's an interesting question. I I would probably, if we're talking fit purely, I understand the reason for Morant, but even then, like I think you can mount a, an interesting case for Zion being the better fit despite the point guard issues. You know, I don't necessarily love the idea of having Zach Levine defend point guards, but if you run a lineup where you have Otto Porter and Zach Levine in your backcourt, and you have a front court of Zion Williamson and Wendell Carter Jr. and Larry Markkinen, that's a real positionless team. So. I don't know about fit. Does does fit become a real issue at that point? Maybe it does if you're trying to define guys into static roles, but if you sort of take that and throw that out of the window, maybe that's not a big of an issue. I don't know. It's an interesting question, but I think on the surface, the answer is probably Jar Morant. It probably would be easier to make him fit on this roster than Zion Williamson, but I don't know. Maybe if you do explore a little bit more, maybe we can find an answer that sort of points to Zion not only being the best player, but being a better fit than Jar Morant based on a few of those points that I raised, but if I have to pick one right now, I'll probably say Jar Morant is probably the more seamless fit than Zion. But obviously, as Matt said there, you take Zion if you've got the opportunity to take him. So that isn't the question here. But moving on to the next question, this one comes in from Aristoteles, and a, a fellow Greek Bulls fan. So thank you for sending in your question here, mate. But he asks, if the Bulls pick fourth, would you take this pick to the Celtics for pick nine, assuming the Grizzlies pick conveys this year? as well as the 18th pick in the draft and a second rounder. So it's a bit of a trade down proposition. And it's an interesting one because I think from say picks four to five through to eight to nine, I think it's pretty even. I think you're probably picking players that, you know, they're going to have some positives, going to have a lot of negatives as well. You're not going to necessarily feel comfortable or maybe with any of those picks. They're, they're going to be flawed picks in, in a lot of ways. So Maybe if you're thinking, can I find the next Wendell Carter at number seven or Larry Markkinen? I, I don't think that's likely. I don't think the draft is as deep as it previously was with those, the, you know, the previous last two seasons. So 
maybe you do entertain going down to nine if your guy, if you think you can get your guy at that range. If you're a, a Darius Garland fan, let's let's use him as an example. Maybe you miss out on Jamaran and you you're still looking for that point guard option. Maybe you feel comfortable that you can get him at pick nine and you trade from four down to nine and collect a few other assets. Get your point guard that you that you sort of need for that roster. You missed on missed out on Jar, but maybe you can get someone else who projects to be a pretty damn good a good point guard in the NBA. But it's an interesting one because I don't know if the 18th or 19th pick, which is currently slated to be in a second round pick, is enough for me to do it. But what I would say is maybe I would consider it if the Celtics were to offer, let's call it pick nine and pick 14 for pick four. So what I'm suggesting here is the Celtics are currently owned are owed the Kings pick rather. So what they could sort of offer up to the Bulls for pick four is maybe pick nine and pick four, 14 rather than pick 18. So you can maybe move up four, four or five spots, uh, slots there in the first round. Maybe that's more appealing to me. But even then, if I can get someone like Jared Culver at four, I'm probably doing that rather than trading back. But if he's off the board and look, I personally, I'm not huge. I'm not, I'm not high on, on uh, RJ Barrett. So in that situation, if uh, if Jared Culver's off the board at three and Jar's already gone at two, maybe I'm looking at trading down if, if my option here is is uh, RJ Barrett or someone else and, and, and maybe taking Darius Garland at number nine or, or something like that and using uh, using pick 14 on another role-playing type uh, guy in the draft. Maybe that's what I'm thinking, but on the initial deal that you sort of proposed, which is pick 18 and a second round, I'm probably not doing it, but in saying that, it probably is based on who is available there at four. Like I said, if you can get Jared Culver at four, I'd probably keep the pick. But if he's if he's gone and it's RJ Barrett, then then I consider it. But ultimately, it's going to come down to a draft day. Maybe that's a, a deal you can line up on draft day and sort of execute if if things sort of play out a certain way. We know like Boston like to I like to haggle and you know trading up in a draft where they don't necessarily need a pick four, or maybe they do. Who knows what they're what will happen with Boston in the offseason. Maybe they will have word from Kyrie at that point as to what he wants to do, or maybe they'll have a sense. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of a fluid situation. It's probably one of those situations that you have to make a call on closer to the draft. But if it's pick 14 rather than pick 18 and two, then I'm probably more inclined to do it. But um, thank you thank you for your question there, Aristoteles. I appreciate it there, mate. Um, so moving on though, this one comes in from Sir Brian G 2 on Twitter, and he asks, Let's say the Bulls have the worst case scenario and get the eighth draft pick. That would be quite disappointing, but so let's let's not hope that's the case. I don't want to spend too much time on this question because I don't want to speak it into existence, but he asks, what should they do? Keep it and hope for a point guard or trade up and down or even possibly out of the draft? And this is a tough one because I think, like I sort of mentioned before, I think it ultimately uh, sort of comes down to what has happened in the draft. And who still is on the board? What other teams are sort of doing? What are they planning? Or what are they willing to give up in, in a trade? These sorts of questions. Ultimately, it comes uh, it comes down to what you, can you get for that eighth pick and if you're trying to trade it or who's available at eight. And maybe there's a player there that the Bulls like at eight that they could potentially get at eight. And maybe it makes sense in that scenario to keep it or maybe it makes more sense to trade it. I, I don't know what the answer is. It, it's, and, and, um, I, know, I guess that's a bit of a cop-out, but... You know, the reality is ultimately it, it, it really depends on what's happening on draft night. So we'll have to see how it all shakes out. Maybe we'll see after the lottery sort of plays out who else sort of falls where wherever they may. If the Bulls have fallen down to eighth and someone's sort of gone up and someone else has gone down too. So 
we'll see how it plays out. But these are the sort of questions that we'll learn in the next month or two. And, and I can't wait for lottery because I think a lot of these questions that we're sort of posing now, a lot of it will start to form a bit more of a shape. Obviously, there's still a lot to be played out in terms of how these these players will sort of project once the tournament's done, how they'll go through the combine, all that sort of stuff. But even on May 14th, how the lottery shapes up, that will answer a lot of our questions too. So I think I have to hit pause on your question there, Brian, and we just need to see how everything uh, how everything plays out. So I, I, I guess that is a bit of a cop-out, but I think it's in reality, it's probably the best, the best answer I can give you at the moment. So thank you for your question though. Um, that's pretty much all I had on the draft, so a little bit less than what I thought, but that's okay because I've still got plenty more to come. But before we do, let me tell you all about this week's sponsor, which is Ethos Life Insurance, getethos.com. So life can be stressful, but getting life insurance shouldn't be. That's why there's Ethos. Ethos is a modern kind of life insurance that's super fast, incredibly affordable, and very uncomplicated. At getethos.com, there are no medical exams for policies covering under a million dollars, no hours of paperwork or meetings with pushy representatives. It only takes 10 minutes to apply, and you can be rest assured knowing you've taken steps to protect your family, and in most cases with Ethos, you can have the peace of mind for less than a cup of coffee a day with no hidden fees. Having life insurance can free you from stress. Getting life insurance shouldn't cause it. Discover how uncomplicated life insurance can be at Ethos. Get your free instant quote and submit your complete application in minutes. Just go to getethos.com. That's E-T-H-O-S. Getethos.com. Getethos.com. All right, that was the sponsor for this week, but let's move on to the next set of questions. And these ones are probably more based around of the actual team that we're seeing at the floor now, particularly of the team uh, post-trade deadline. So I've got some interesting questions here that sort of make sense to touch on. And the first one comes in here from KC Scott. And he asks, how do you contextualize the Bulls' success in February given how bad they looked before and since? And this is an interesting question because it's something I sort of wrote about on Bloggable the other day. And Henry Gwindy asked a similar type question. He asks, has the honeymoon with Otto Porter and that 7-2 stretch ended? And now are we back to the real level of play? And I think these are both interesting questions because pretty much, or well, it started a little bit before the trade of Otto Porter, but it really took off after Otto Porter. Things just sort of really clicked with Larry Markin and Zach Levine. Otto Porter fitted in seamlessly and it looked like the Bulls were going places. And like most people, I bought into what I was seeing and based on what we saw in February, and the Bulls are basically playing 500 basketball. And I'll put my hand up and, and I'll admit that I probably fell victim to what I was seeing at the time and maybe believed a little too hard. And I think what we're seeing in March sort of reaffirms that. Larry Markkinen has come down a little bit. Zach Levine has sort of been in and out of the lineup with injury. And obviously, Otto Porter has been in out of the out of the lineup too with injury. So injury has played somewhat of a part, but the team pretty much since February uh, February has been just terrible on defense. They're currently 29th on defense since February 1, which is just terrible considering Jim Boylan, prior to being promoted as head coach, was ahead of the defense. So I would have expected, if nothing else, the defense to improve under Jim, uh, Jim Boylan, but it's actually gone uh, backwards. The defense was actually better under Fred Hoiberg somehow. So I don't know how this is happening. So to answer your question, I am kind of disappointed about how things have sort of unfolded because in February, I was feeling quite high about this team. March has been a different story. And how do we contextualize it? Well, the way I contextualize it in my article for Bloggable is to say, 
We've seen this all before. And by that, I mean, I used an example in that article where I pointed to a 27 game stretch last season with the Bulls where after starting the season with a 3-20 and record, the Bulls got back Nikola Mirotic, Bobby Porras, even Chris Dunn was sort of rounding into form at that point. So their roster was sort of shaping up and was finally healthy. And during that 27-game stretch after the first 23 games, the Bulls actually won 15 of those 27 games, which is much more of an impressive run than what we saw from February through to March. And they did so by playing good basketball on both sides of the ball. They're actually, I think it was 14th on defense and 15th on offense, or it could have been the other way around. But the point is they were basically middle of the road with on both sides of the ball. Whereas here, the Boylan Bulls have been really good on offense somehow, being top 10 in offense, but the defense has just been atrocious. So they haven't been playing both sides of the ball. And to be an actual good team or to show signs of being a good team or showing growth towards being that, you really need to be sort of hovering or or at least projecting to be good on both sides of the ball. And we haven't seen that at all from this team. So I understand that you know some of it's based on personnel, having a lot of players in and out of the lineup, relying on guys that probably shouldn't be in the rotation, and you know having someone like Wendell Carter missing time, even that even though he's a rookie, he's probably your best defender at this point. It obviously hurts the defense, but still, to be 29th on defense, look, I'm not asking a lot. I'm not asking the Bulls to be you know top 10 in defense at this point, but. At least give me a 20th 20th ranked defense, not 29th, something like that, please. But yeah, it's been kind of disappointing. So how do I contextualize it? I uh, I think I foolishly bought in too hard and too fast, and I should have known better. We've seen we've seen the Bulls look better than what we've seen in February, and we saw that last season under Hoiberg, but we just forgot about it, I guess, and or at least I did. But then, for whatever reason, through the despair of March, I I kind of remembered again that. I should have known better and we've seen we've seen the Bulls play better before. So I'm going to approach the rest of the season with more trepidation and ultimately about how I feel about this team going forward. It's still going to be based around what they do in the offseason, what happens in the draft, what they do in free agency. But um, yeah, maybe it's, it's clipped my wings a little bit about going too hard and being a little bit too optimistic about this team off a, a 10-game February sample. I probably went a little too hard. But um, if you're like me, you probably did the same. But I don't know what to make of it going forward. But hopefully we see those versions of Larry Markin and Zach Levine next season. That's, that was probably the biggest positive. That's why I was super optimistic. But both have sort of come down a little bit. But as I said, Larry's come down a bit. Zach's been in and out of the lineup. And the team's not really necessarily playing for anything at this point. So I don't necessarily blame the players for not going out there and playing super hard right now. There's There's really nothing to play for. And... That's the case for a lot of teams around the league right now. I mean, if a team with LeBron, LeBron James isn't going out hard, then I can understand why the Bulls aren't necessarily playing too hard themselves, given that they don't have anything to play for. But I don't know, man. I probably went a little bit too hard. So how do I contextualize it? I just got to be smarter and just don't be maybe too optimistic too quickly. Uh, I went too see Red Fred in the month of February, and I uh, I regret that. <laughs> Yeah, I should have known better. There's, there's a saying that I have that you never go full C Red Fred, but um, unfortunately, I did go full C Red Fred. So, I, I sh- yeah, I should have known better. But anyways, moving on. So this next question comes in from Franklin Benjamin. He asks, do you think Larry has some conditioning problems? In, fe- in February, specifically, Zach and Larry played more than 35 minutes per game. I think this is the biggest challenge for Larry. We have already seen his potential, but carrying he carry the franchise on another level. It's an interesting question because the Bulls did lean heavily on Larry during that February period. They did with Zach too as well. So 
they probably played them too many minutes, but given that the depth is kind of tested in here with all the injuries and the fact that they traded two players for one for Otto Porter at the deadline, that the rotation was kind of already stretched and tested. And the Bulls just don't have a lot of front court depth at the moment, which is kind of ironic given how much front court depth they did have at the start of the season. But beyond Lowry and Lopez at this point, the only big that they have on the roster that's active is Cristiano Felicio. And let's be honest, this guy should be playing more than five minutes a game in the NBA. So there's not many options for Boylan to play there in the front court. So maybe the Bulls did use Lowry too much. Maybe he did get exhausted, but that's something he needs to work on. He needs to work on his conditioning. And obviously it's only his sophomore season. So we expect him to build on that base of fitness that he's sort of already established but that's something he needs to do if he wants to be that big time player so it's hard for me to sit here and criticize his conditioning given that I'm not inside the advocate center and seeing how hard these guys do or don't work but I mean just thinking about it logically he's a second year player he's still getting used to the NBA game and the NBA speed and those sorts of things so does he have a conditioning problem probably not more so than most second year players but it's something that he'll need to improve going forward definitely I, I think that's fair to say for Lowry particularly if he's going to be that 34 to 35 minute player who's going to be the spearhead of the offense if that's what he wants it to wants to be and hopefully that's what he can be then uh yeah he will definitely need to work on his conditioning so let's see how he does that in the upcoming season next year so thanks for your question there franklin benjamin so i wanted to now move on away from these sort of team-based questions from this season and talk more off-season and free agency so let's get into this question here from julian coletta he asks once LeBron takes Luke Walton's job, should the Bulls pursue him or are there better candidates out there? So I, I, I like the I like the way you phrase that question, but um, I think the Bulls should definitely pursue Luke Walton. And I mentioned that piece that I wrote up on Bloggable the other day. And, and part of it was, I guess the underlying point was, I, there was a narrative sort of changing about Jim Boylan and the fact that the Bulls played really well in February and how that should really reflect for Jim Boylan and maybe he should really, you know, have his, well, he, I guess he has a contract for next season, but maybe he should be the coach for next season. And I still don't buy that at all. I still think Jim Boylan's a bad coach, despite the Bulls playing better in February. Um, so I think they definitely should be uh, exploring the coaching market in the off season. And I'll be very disappointed if they don't, but if they do open it up to the field, I think Luke Walton's name, assuming LeBron does take his job, which I think is a fair assumption, then I, I I think Luke Walton should be an option for the Bulls. He's a good young head coach. I think he what he did with the Lakers last season, not necessarily this season. I think he did a pretty damn good job for a first-year coach or second-year coach, whatever he was at that point with a young team. He had him playing hard on defense. They were running hard on offense, and he was kind of doing what I hoped the Bulls could do. So I think he's a name that you definitely have to entertain. Now, maybe his name has been somewhat sullied here with the Lakers this season, given all that's gone on, but I don't think it's all his fault and you know maybe you can't control LeBron James but how many coaches can I, I don't know but Luke Walton is definitely a guy that was I would sort of hope the Bulls would interview if they do extend that coaching search which like I said I hope they do but another guy that I'm sort of keeping my eye on is Terry Stotts in Portland and this is completely speculative on my part I have no idea what's going to happen in Portland but let's I've just got a scenario in my head where the Blazers sort of finish in that four to five seed the same team sort of kicking over and over and over again we sort of know what their ceiling is we know what their floor is they're likely to be a playoff team with Lillard and, and McCollum and, and Nurkic there as their main three guys but if let's assume they play in the first round again and get bundled out in the first round and do so pretty unconvincingly 
then maybe maybe Portland need to do something, whether that's trading, you know, CJ McCollum or or maybe even doing that and firing Terry Stotts, doing a full Toronto and getting rid of the coach and arguably one of the best players on the roster. Maybe that opens up someone like Terry Stotts for the Bulls job or something like that. And I think for his offensive system and what he has done in Portland, he would be a damn good pickup as well. And and just having having Lowry and Zach sort of operating and even Otto Porter and Wendell Carter Jr. too operating within a Terry Stotts offense. That's sort of something that really interests me too. So, but like I said a little bit early on, it's kind of hard to answer these questions because we don't know who will or won't have a job as well. I think Monty Williams is an interesting candidate. He's, I don't think he's necessarily a coach that can take you to a championship, but maybe he's that A to B type style coach. I think he's definitely better than Jim Boylan, but um, I think there's actually going to be some options here for the Bulls in the offseason. So I hope they do extend their coaching search beyond Jim Boylan. And I think it'd be foolish if they didn't. But yeah, Luke Walton, I'm interested in him. Terry Stotts, if he becomes available, maybe there's some other playoff uh, coaches that it will be in the playoffs that become available too, if it doesn't necessarily go the way those teams hope. So let's let's keep an eye on that space. But um, I think the Bulls should be thinking about who their next coach will be already. So thanks for that question there, Julian. Let's move on to the next one here from Eric Lee. He asks, is there a trade market for Chris Dunn? If not, do you think he'd accept a bench role? Yeah, this is this is an interesting one because I, I think ideally Chris Dunn's role in the NBA is probably as a bench player. I, I don't think you can have a player like Dunn starting in an NBA anymore. And I say that predominantly because he's, he's just too inefficient. His true shooting percentage is below 50% again this season. And that's just, that's just horrific for a point guard. I put it on Twitter the other day, but it's basically been seven years since the Bulls had a starting point guard that was at least at league average in true shooting percentage. And that was pre-ACL Derrick Rose that did that. So it's been a long time since we've had a, an NBA point guard starting for the Bulls that who's actually been an efficient point guard. And you can even make the argument that the best point guard seasons that we've had before Derrick Rose tore his ACL was either DJ Augustine or Nate Robinson coming off the bench. Two guys who were given vet, vet min type deals at the last second and who weren't retained beyond one season who sort of both saved or helped save the Bulls season. So it's it's been a dire situation for most Bulls point guards. But I don't know if, if Dunn would accept that. I think he would need to accept that if that's... It, it, depending on what the Bulls do, if Jar Morant comes to town, or even if the Bulls bring in a you know a free agent like Ricky Rubio or someone of that nature, then then I think Chris Dunn needs to accept that he's probably better suited to a bench role. He 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 just doesn't do enough without the ball to justify starting. And if this offense is going to run through Zach Levine and and Larry Markin and potentially even who who the Bulls draft as well, then what is that? What is Chris Dunn doing without the ball? And the answer is not much, unfortunately. So it probably makes sense to to bring him off the bench where you'll have the ball more in his hands in those second units and he can be that second point guard off the bench, kind of like what Terry Rozier is for the Boston Celtics at the moment. I think it sort of eases the pressure on Dunn a little bit too, but ultimately I'm, I'm not high on Dunn just generally being on this roster at all. I think, you know, if I'm him, I, I would probably be disappointed about going to the bench. If I'm him, I'm, I'm a fourth-year player next season. I'm still wanting to find out if I can be a starter. And maybe that doesn't happen in Chicago, but if I'm him, I'm maybe trying to push for a trade at that point and, and find a team like Phoenix, let's say, and they, they need a defensive point guard that you can sort of put next to Devin Booker, particularly if they don't get a guy like Ja Morant. Uh, if I was done, I'd kind of want out at that point because I would still be wanting to try to figure out where my career sort of lands. I, I can be a bench backup at any point beyond this sort of rookie deal, but 
I, it, it, you know, with one year left on my rookie deal, at least let me try to still be a starter. So I think the best situation here for the Bulls and Dunn is to actually move on and, and create a trade between between Dunn and the Bulls. I think it, it sort of makes sense for both parties. So I'd be up for that because I don't think Chris Dunn is the answer. And I think the Bulls have to move on at point guard, be it through the draft or free through free agency. I'm okay with bringing Dunn back initially as a, as a bench point guard, but even then, he'll be in the final year of his deal, and I think it'll be a similar situation with Chris Dunn as it was with Bobby Portis, where you probably know deep down this guy's not going to be worth the money that he may or may not get, and he probably has more hopes or more aspirations than being a bench player, so it probably just makes more sense getting rid of him and moving on and giving that sort of that role to a, a cheaper a cheaper option. But um, that's what I would do. But look, who knows what will happen, at least with these Bulls going forward. But I, I think the Bulls really do need to move on with Chris Dunn. And if it's not in the offseason, then maybe the trade deadline. But but we will see. But related to that question, this one came in from Kronos X. And he asks, should Archer Diakono replace Dunn next year as a second point guard off the bench, assuming the Bulls upgrade the starting point guard position? And you know, I'm sure you're all aware that I'm a big Ryan Archidiakono fan. I think he's proven this season that he's worthy of 15, 20 minutes a game. And I think he could definitely fill in as a backup point guard. It probably makes sense for him probably to be more of a third string point guard. If Ryan Archidiakono is your third string point guard, it probably means your point guard position is pretty healthy, in my opinion, at least. But I think he is kind of good enough to be a backup point guard. But I think the Bulls should be aiming a little bit higher, but at the same case, if Archie Diakono is your backup point guard for 15 minutes a night, then me personally, I'm very comfortable with that. I, you guys know that I rate him as a player, so I, I'm down with that, but I, I don't know how you guys feel about that. Let me know on Twitter, at MKHoops, but I'm up for that completely. But uh, I don't know what you think, Kronos X, but let me know. But I'm all for Archie Diakono being the Bulls' backup point guard. But again, let's see let's see how these things shake out. Maybe they draft Ja Morant, Maybe they sign a veteran point guard and maybe Ja Morant's initially the backup point guard with that veteran being the starter initially. So in that case, maybe Arch is the third point guard. I would definitely keep him. If the decision was between Chris Dunn or Archer Diakono as to who you want to keep, I'm keeping Archer Diakono to be fair, uh, to be frank. So yeah, that's kind of my position on it. Probably not um, not, not too surprising, but uh, I think he's a good player. So I'm all for keeping him around and giving him minutes of point guard. Um, and this next question also relates to the point guard situation. So definitely a theme here for the podcast, whether it's in relation to the draft or, or the offseason moves, clearly point guard is a position that has the fan base at least thinking about what is going to happen here. And if we're thinking about it, fingers crossed the management are too. I'm sure they are. But this one, this question comes in from Larry Legend 10 on Twitter. He asks, what would it take to sign Malcolm Brogdon as our point guard of the future? How would you compare signing him to Beverly or Colson and which is more realistic? So this is an interesting question because I don't know if you've read it, but Stefano sort of put up a piece there on The Athletic last week in terms of, he basically listed out all the Bulls' potential options at point guard and Malcolm Brogdon is probably one of those options. It'll be interesting to see what his market is because he's currently out for six to eight weeks, which is unfortunate for him and the Bucks. One for the Bucks for their playoff push, but also two for Brogdon as well, because maybe this hurts his value in free agency. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know, but there's going to be a lot of teams with cap space, so maybe it doesn't necessarily hurt his value. But realistically, I think he'll probably get a contract around 12 to $15 million annually, so maybe a four-year, $60 million type contract. I could easily see Brogdon getting that sort of number. His teammate, 
Eric Bledsoe, who is currently four years older than him or three years older than him. He got four years, 70. I don't think the gap between Bledsoe and Brogdon is that large. So four years, 55, four years, 60. That's probably what it would cost to to get Brogdon. And, and maybe it's even a little bit more. Now, the Bucks will have a lot of free agents. They're going to have to sort of choose as to what guys they want to bring back. So I don't know, maybe you can sort of push them and stretch them to get him out of Milwaukee. Maybe that will cost you a little bit more to do so. But I think Malcolm Brogdon is a gettable player. But I don't love the idea of paying Brogdon, you know, 12 to $15 million. I think he's a good player for a contending team where he's your fourth or fifth best starter. But for a rebuilding team like the Bulls, who are still yet to be back in the playoffs, to ask a guy like Brogdon to be a 12 to $15 million player, whereas currently for Milwaukee, he's, you know, he's only earning a couple million dollars. Whatever he's earning at Milwaukee, it's definitely not much. I think at that point, he probably moves away from being a productive contract to being, you know, a so-so contract and one of those contracts that, you know, it's productive enough to be a decent player, but it's not one that you necessarily love. So I don't love the idea of giving Malcolm Brogdon a big-time deal like that. And I probably would more lean to Patrick Beverly, a guy that you could probably get for one or two years for, you know, five to $7 million. And particularly if you draft someone like Ja Morant, who you want to get minutes into, Patrick Beverly's okay with playing 20 or 25 minutes a game. He's sort of used to being that role player. So you could sort of have Jar Morant as your backup initially with Pat Bev in the lineup, the starting unit, giving, you know, 20, 25 minutes. Then you can sub in Jar Morant as an example. I'd probably be more inclined to, to, to go after Pat Bev, give him $7 million a season rather than sort of doubling that money on someone like Malcolm, Malcolm Brogdon and just using that difference between Patrick Beverly's contract and that Malcolm Brogdon contract to find another player which can sort of fit on this roster because it's just not point guard that the Bulls need. They need some more wing solutions. I think they should bring back Wayne Seldon and they definitely need some backup bigs. I don't want to see Cristiano Felicio playing minutes next season at all. So they'll need a backup power forward and they'll need a backup center, whether that's Robin Lopez or someone else. I'm hopeful that it's Taj Gibson, but they need some other options. So I don't think they should go splurging on a point guard here because I think they could get some cheap on options like Patrick Beverly. So that's what I have in mind. So hopefully that answers your question there, Larry Legend 10. All right, so we're getting to the final countdown here. We've only got a few more to go, but this is an interesting question here from Shy Sports Fan 95 He asks, with growing young corps amongst some lottery teams, who wins a playoff series first? Bulls, Hawks, Kings or Mavs rank in order one through four. Now, this is a really good question because I think they're probably the best young squads going around in the league. Uh, maybe you could add you know, a couple more to that. I, I think the Denver Nuggets should still be considered a young team given that their young players are similarly aged to the Bulls. So I think we could add the Nuggets to this who are already kind of in the playoffs. But let's just roll with the four teams you've listed here. So... Ultimately, it's going to come down to the draft with this question, to be honest with you. It's going to be based on who gets Zion. And maybe the team that gets Zion, if it's not one of these four teams, maybe it's that team that sort of pops up. So, I don't know. Let's call it the Phoenix Suns. If they can add Zion to DeAndre Ayton and, and Devin Booker and, and Michael Bridges, then maybe they're the answer here. But um, based on the four teams you mentioned here, it's ultimately going to come down to the lottery. So, what I mean by that is if the Mavs can actually sneak into a top five pick and instead of conveying their pick to the Hawks this season and get it to the next season, maybe they can get into the top three and get someone like Jar Morant or Jarrett Culver or hell, even Zion Williamson. Could you imagine Zion with Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis? I mean, that changes the equation pretty quickly for the Mavs. And, and maybe that's the answer here. But similarly, if the Bulls get Zion or if the Hawks got, get Zion, 
that changes their perspective too. But ultimately, it's probably not going to be the Kings because they don't own their draft pick this season. So um, it, it's kind of hard to answer because we need to know what happens with the draft. But let's just take the let's just take the lottery out of it or, or the draft out of it because that's probably too big of an issue to decipher at this point. So let's just focus on the talent on hand and let's just ignore draft picks at the moment because, like I said, it, it makes the quen- the question really hard to answer. But I would probably go one of the teams in the East because the West is just perpetually much harder to get in the playoffs. So we're seeing the resurgent Kings sort of almost play 500 ball and, and they're not going to make the playoffs in the West where they would still be pushing for a playoff spot in the East here. So I think it's probably more likely to be one of the Bulls and Hawks purely because they play in the Eastern Conference. And based on that, again, if we're just taking the draft out of it, I'd probably pick the Hawks given they're being more oppressive this season than the Bulls. But I don't think the Bulls are that far behind the Hawks, particularly if we get, you know, a core of, of Zach Levine, Larry Markin, and Wendell Carter and Otto Porter sort of playing more minutes and more games together. I think if we see that overextended period, then maybe that we have the same opinion about the Bulls that we do the Atlanta Hawks. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this probably already have a greater opinion of the Bulls than the Hawks, but I don't currently. I think the Hawks have gone past the Bulls in terms of their rebuild. But we've seen the Brooklyn Nets who have had a series of, of good seat, good off-seasons in terms of what their management have done. They've built a team from ground up and have built a, a likely playoff team. And like I said, the East is kind of bad. So I think one of the Bulls or Hawks is probably more likely to do something similar to what the Nets have done than I would say the, the Mavs or Kings based on the fact that they play in the West. But I'll probably say Hawks at this moment at number one and then maybe, maybe Bulls at number two and Mavs at number three, and then I'll put the Kings at four just purely because, I don't know, I kind of like the upside of Doncic and Chris Stapps, and I mean, that can be scary good, but ultimately that comes back to Chris Stapps and how healthy he is, but all four of these teams, really, I think they're all going to be really good. I don't know if any of them are contenders, and maybe we don't know that at this point, and like I said, it probably changes at the draft, but if nothing else, I think they're all going to be fun watchers next season. The Hawks have been really good this season. The Kings have been probably the the most fun team that I've watched on league paths all season, and just watching Luka Doncic, I mean, that that is an experience in itself, and then when you add Chris Stapps to the mix next season, I think it'll be really fun. So I think if you're a fan of all four of those teams, you're, pretty, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, but at the moment, I'll rank it Hawks, I'll put it Bulls, and then I'll go Mavs and Kings. I think maybe you could flip Mavs and Bulls potentially. But uh, given this is a Bulls, a Bulls podcast, I'll put Bull, uh, the Chicago Bulls at number two. I won't be too hard on them right now. But um, yeah, fun question. It's an interesting one to think about. But like I said, once you add the element of the draft into it, I think that's when we really get the answer to this question. And like I said, it might not even be one of these four teams that get that playoff, uh, playoff berth first. It, it could be a team like Phoenix if they get their hands on Z- uh, Zion or... Yeah, I, I really hope Zion doesn't end up on, on the Suns, but I mean, that's another topic altogether. But uh, thanks for your question there, Shy Sports Fan 95 So this last two questions, and I'm looking at them now, and they're, uh, they're interesting questions, and they're not, they're probably more so for me than the actual balls. So uh, I'll, I'll indulge these questions for now, but um, this one comes in from, again, from Aristoteles, and he asks, how is life after marriage? Are you sure your wife doesn't have a burner account asking you about the bulls? Well, 
Uh, how is life after marriage? Well, it's been a few weeks and she hasn't left yet. So I guess that's a positive. So that, that's going well on that front. But does she have a burner account? And is she asking me about the bulls? I, I really hope not. <laughs> I mean, it would be kind of sad if she's set up a burner account and is actually sort of following me online and asking me questions about the bulls. But having said that, I haven't actually seen C Reddit Fred in person. So that could be her burner account. I don't know, but um, that's actually a scary thought. Holy shit. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to go from that anymore. I'm just going to say, no, she doesn't have a burner account. Uh, life's good. Marriage is good. Everything is good. It's, she's not zero. She's not zero for it. Um, oh God. Um, <laughs> next question. Last question. This one's from uh, Brian G again. And he asks, this is a weird question, man. Uh, hell, yeah. You're on a Bulls cruise with current and former players, but the ship starts sinking. You wind up in a lifeboat with Captain Kirk and Ryan Archidiakono. There's not enough food or water for all of you to survive. <laughs> this is dark. Which player do you kill and eat? Oh man, this is this is this is a dark question, dude. Uh, I don't know what you're doing. Um, but the, this is a simple question for me. I I let them eat me. I mean, I'm the loser here. If I'm in a lifeboat with Ryan Archidiakono and Kirk Heinrich, the world needs them more than they do me. So they can take me, take my take my quadricep, you know, eat that on Monday, take my other quad on Tuesday, have, you know, consume that, have my warm on Wednesday, whatever you need to do. But I'm saving Captain Kirk and Ryan Archidiakono because that's the kind of, that's the kind of guy I am. I'm, I'm putting the team first and those guys need to be sticking around longer than I do. So um, that's how I answer that. Strange and weird question, but I, I do appreciate that one. It's um, it's definitely right up my alley, I guess, sort of. But um, look, thanks for your question, Brian. But thank you all to all your questions. I really do appreciate you sending them in. Hopefully, I answered them all as well enough as I could. Like I said, I was watching the Bulls at the same time. But to be honest with you, I wasn't really watching that game. That was just a dreadful performance by the Chicago Bulls. But again, thank you to everyone for sending in your questions, and thank you to the listeners for your understanding for me being away for a few weeks. Like I said. I'm sure you've been digesting the Cash Considerations podcast and getting your Bulls analysis through Jason and Ricky, but I do appreciate your understanding of me being away for the last two to three weeks. Life gets in the way sometimes, but in this scenario, I guess it was for a valid reason. But I do appreciate you guys coming back to Bulls HQ and listening into this episode. Hopefully you found it a little bit entertaining, well, definitely more entertaining to that Bulls Utah game. But having said that, that's kind of a low baseline. But hopefully, you enjoy the show. We'll be back again this time next week. Um, and like I said from the top, check out Blue Wire Pods. Look for all the shows on iTunes, on Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, all the usual places where you find your podcast. Go to bluewirepods.com and check out what shows are available. And like I said, it's humbling and it's really cool to be part of the Blue Wire family now, along with Cash Considerations and all the other good NBA and NFL podcasts up on there. So thanks to Kevin and the Blue Wire team for bringing Bulls HQ and myself on. I really do appreciate it. And finally, as always, be sure to follow me on Twitter at MKHoops. Follow the show on Twitter too, at BullsHQPod. So that just about does it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'm glad to be back. We'll be back again next week. So until then, this has been BullsHQ. Speak to you guys then. I'm 
Samira Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.